0: Thank you for letting me come here. Uh, I've, um, I don't want to say because uh, you have just preached it, and uh, thank you for that. And the other thing too is um, I didn't expect that kind of introduction um, later on in Sunday school. Um, as I share with you, you learn that uh, there's really nothing great about me, and it's really an opportunity that the Lord had provided, and through various ways and various means. And I just happened to be there at the right time, at the right place. Um, I think uh, James and most of you will know that the only reason we have this privilege is only because of Christ. And that really, when we really look at our own lives and where our hearts really are, it is really by God's grace. He strengthens, enables us, He gives us the privilege to do that which He desires in our lives. Um, it's, uh, so far this morning i've been very much edified and built up by you you uh, had a wonderful time of worshiping and praising the Lord. The time that you had was uh, the way you, you uh, sang praises was just so respectful of him who deserves our honor and glory. I thank Pam for her testimony testifying to the faithfulness of the Lord and even your FLF class. Um, I guess it gives me a lot more. Uh, confidence in Jason. Uh, he's a seminarian, going to a seminary, and even he had to go through F.O.F. here. So, uh, uh, so at least I know that when he goes over there, he, you know, he would have a solid grasp of his doctrine. Uh, thank you very much for your faithfulness even towards him. It's indeed a privilege, as you know. Um, uh, just um, uh, a little while ago, we spent time just remembering Christ's work on the cross. And, and this year, it might have been a little bit different because not only the people in the church were focused on that, but even people in this country, in fact, perhaps in many parts of the world, because of a, a film that came out with much controversy, The Passion of the Christ. And, uh, and that's even reflected in Time Magazine. Oh, every Easter, they put out something on Jesus. And this, this year, they put, Why did Jesus have to die? And it has... Uh, for better or for worse, this movie has brought many people to Christ at the cross and his journey there, his passion. And uh, part of my work when I go over, before I actually go in country, I have a stopover in another place over there. Um, actually, on my way over there, I stop over in Hong Kong. And there's a man there that I meet with every time I go there. And, and this man, I actually met with when we were in Singapore. And... Uh, he was a buddhist man a devout buddhist in fact when he was born his, after he was born when he grew up and could understand things his mother told him when you were born the reason the only reason you're alive is because buddha saved you and and what his mother told him was that when, when before she had him she had a, a nightmare you can say and in this nightmare there are some monsters trying to grab this her baby from her womb and then buddha came and saved this baby from these monsters, so to speak, and so she, this mother told this man, so because you know he saved you, you gotta dedicate your life to Buddhism. So at a, a young age, he uh, began studying the Buddha sutras, you can say, and he knows the teaching of Buddha very well, and he tries strives to live by their uh, paradigms, their uh, morality or their uh, integrity that's taught in those pages, and. By God's providence I met with this man while we were in Singapore and we had lunch one day and he was telling me about Buddhism and the wisdom there. And during our lunch I just turned to him and I said, You know, um, you know, I, I study from a book that has a lot of wisdom. And, and it has wisdom to give life and it's called the Bible. And there are books dedicated to wisdom, they're like the book of Proverbs. So I said to him, Would you like to study this book with me? Not knowing how he respond. And he said, Yes. So since that time, this was about three years ago, um, at that time when he was in Singapore, I used to meet with him weekly and we started studying through scriptures. starting at Genesis. And uh, uh, after that, when we came back to do this other ministry, uh, he actually moved back to Hong Kong. He was from Hong Kong. And so every time I traveled this other country, I would stop over there first before I go to this other country. And we would meet every time we go in. And uh, right now we're in Exodus. But the last time I saw him, he had seen the movie The Passion of the Christ, and after that movie, he, he bought this magazine, Time magazine. He had read the article. I don't know how many of you have read it, but if you read, read it. There, there are many views presented there on why Christ had to die. And and he, after he read it, uh, he came to me and he says, "You know, I saw this movie and I, I read this uh, this article and you know, you know, I, I don't understand. What's this all about? You know, how come? Can you tell me what you think of this article?" So he he handed it to me. I, I looked at it quickly and. Uh, I realized no wonder he was confused. It, 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 uh, well, some some parts dealt with the gospel the way it was, but most of it was the of other things like uh, that. He it just totally confused him. And uh, we know that uh, Christ on the cross is probably the crux of why we believe what we believe. Because, well, his death there, everything that we believe. Well, his resurrection. We of all people are most to be pitied, right? In 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ does not rise again. So, the question is, bang, why did Christ have to die? And the thing is, we have to get to the truth, because there's so even as we read here, there's so many different views of why Christ had to die. We have to get to the truth of it. And we have to have the right response. I remember a number of years ago, when we were in Singapore, as we were missionaries there, as uh, my wife was um, putting our sons to bed, and she was, uh, normally, before she... Um, uh, puts the, our, our boys to bed. She would sit on the bedside and pray with them before they slept. And um, uh, bef- uh, always after dinner, we have our Bible time. So we to them about Jesus dying on the cross and the gospel and things like that. We taught them the other stories that they love to hear, like Jonah and the big fish, and they love Noah's Ark. And my oldest son especially loves the battle of Jericho. But uh, something we just thank God. Something just stuck in his mind. Because that night, as they uh, as they prepared to pray. My wife asked my older son, Nathan, uh, you know, uh, said that we're going to pray. And then he said, Mommy, you know, you have to remember something. Uh, she had asked, asked Nathan, what should we thank God for? She says, Mommy, we've got we to gotta thank God. We've got to thank Christ for the cross. We need to thank Christ for the cross. It just blew my wife away. And afterwards, my wife told me that. And I said, yeah, that's, that's incredible. We, we don't know how much, uh, where God is drawing his heart. Uh, we thank the Lord for the low grace, but He recognized that the cross was very important. And, and today, as we, uh, uh, as you might have some friends that saw this movie, they might ask you the same question: now Why did Christ have to die? Why did He have to go through all that? The movie doesn't explain it. It shows it very graphically. The points going up to the cross as Jesus made His way there, and uh, they, they understand a bit more of the suffering that Christ went through—the physical suffering. And, and I think uh, perhaps it pointed towards the painful solitude he had on the cross as God poured out his wrath on him. But the question remains, what should their response, what is the proper response to Christ on the cross? And, and following that, even this, that happened 2,000 years ago almost, and still people are still questioning as they see it. This morning, uh, we're going to look at a very familiar passage to us. We're going to focus basically on uh, Matthew 28, 16-20. But, before we get there, the, uh, Matthew records for us certain responses of the different people to Christ's resurrection on the cross, to the crucified and resurrected Christ. So, uh, this morning, uh, we already read this, so before we begin looking at it, just examining it, let us look to the Lord that He might open our hearts to His Word. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son Jesus Christ and for the work that which He had done on that cross, that He would die in obedience to you, that He would suffer in obedience with you, that He was crushed and it pleased you to crush him, so that we might be healed. It is an awesome Thing that he had done there, and Lord, help us to understand that a bit more today as we study your word. Help us to have the response you desire from our lives in response to his work, his obedient and submissive work on the cross, that he might glorify your name and that he might redeem us, your children. Lord, may your word impact our hearts that it might not return to you empty and without accomplishing the purpose for which it was sent. So that our lives might glorify you, that we might do what you desire, and that we might have the right relationship with you. In Christ's name, we pray and for your sake. Amen. As, as we come to this portion, actually, um, um, you might know that uh, as uh, from what I hear from James, as he taught you from John, it seems like he's been doing some very good teaching. And sometimes, you know, when we teach, we f- tend to focus on, you know. We've been taught to understand what the verse is and exposit it and do exegetical work on it. Today, I'm going to be a bit different. We're going to look at a very large section of uh, Matthew, the last portion. And actually, we're going to start looking from uh, the end end of chapter 27 and go on to the end of uh, chapter 28. And we're going to look at some responses that Matthew records to Christ's resurrection from various different groups, and uh, you can see in your outline that there's. We're going to look at five different responses to the resurrected Christ. The first one is an ignorant response. The second is an intolerant response. The third is an introverted response. A fourth is an indifferent response, and the fifth is the proper resa- response of a true disciple. So, if you will, let's look at the first one, an ignorant response. Look at look at chapter 27, verse 62. To the end, verse 66 and it reads now on the next day which is the one after the preparation the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said sir we remember that when he was still alive that the deceiver said after three days I am to rise again therefore give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day lest the disciples come and steal him away and say to the people he has risen from the dead and the last deception will be worse than the first Pilate said to them you have a guard go and make it as secure as you know how and they went and made the grave secure and along with the guard they set a seal on the stone here sorry I went to the wrong section (laughs) please forgive me Uh, this is um, this is actually the intolerant response sorry let's look at that here is we're going to the second point first okay this is an intolerant response from this section we see the intolerant response of the chief priests and elders of Israel. Now, here, now here we have seen that as, as we read through the kangaroo court case of Christ on trial, we see that they did together had devised the plan to put Christ on the cross. And not only that, here we see them devising a plan and pl- plotting a lie for the soldiers. Even before Christ was resurrected, these leaders, these Pharisees, and the and the leaders wanted to make sure that, God, that, God, that the gospel was not going to come true because they knew that they had heard it and they knew what Christ wanted to do. So they wanted to ensure that this Christ was not, was not going to have his success. He was not going to have his cake or eat it. So not only did they want to ensure a lie about the resurrection of Christ, they wanted to ensure that there is no possibility even of a deception from this so-called Messiah. The sick irony is that Whatever they falsely accuse others of is the very sin they themselves commit. So here they, uh, he said, you are. Uh, they want to make sure. Just look look at over at chapter twenty-eight. What they say in verse thirteen? They instructed the soldiers to lie, to deceive others. He said, he said in verse thirteen, you are to say to. You have to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep, so although they accused the messiah of perhaps uh, the disciples of Messiah of having a deception making a, perhaps making a deception, they themselves were the ones that actually were doing this deceiving and the, the irony is that when these people who are intolerant is that when you look at their logic, when you look at their thinking, it is just so it's even deceived in itself. First they told the soldiers to say what? His disciple you're to say, his disciples came by night and stole away while we were asleep. So the question that comes, you know, if they're to give this as the reason for losing Jesus of the tomb, then how would they know? Because they were asleep. They're sleeping through the whole process. How would they know that someone stole him and they were asleep? It doesn't even make sense. Secondly, there are supposed to be guards. And if you're on guard, you're not supposed to do what? Sleeping. I mean, they gave them the worst possible reason to tell to their superiors. I mean, it's a self-condemning statement. They were sleeping on a job. So actually, the the lie that they wanted the guards to say would actually condemn the uh, the guards themselves to death because in those days, if you lose your prisoner, in those days, what would happen if you lost your prisoner? You had to lose your life. But the, the, the thing is that when you rage against Christ, when you hate Christ, when you work against him, there is no logic. And the, the funny thing is that these men hardly agreed to this deception of the Pharisees, of the chief priests. And uh, these are people who are against Christ. You can say the Antichrist, denying that Christ was resurrected. These are what the chief priests did. They want to deny that Christ was resurrected even though he was, even though the proof was there. And even today, we see lots of examples of that, this intolerant response. They cannot, people cannot respond to the evidence that's there. You you might try to tell people and share with people that Christ is truly resurrected. there's the empty tomb, but they vehemently deny it. There's one man, um, a Roman Catholic liberal, who wrote a book called who killed Jesus? He's so, he's so intolerant of the resurrected Christ that he had to come up with some explanation of why Christ had died. Um, a, a number, about four or five years ago, as I was preparing for ordination, I, I love to study at Borders. You know, it, you know, it's a place where you can study and people you know, don't bother you. And then you can also have a coffee. And while I was studying there, um, there was a young lady who sat down beside me and she was actually reading this book who killed Jesus? And, and and I was actually studying for my ordination, and so I knew what that book was about, and I knew the, the lies that was put in there. I knew how much this man John Dominic Cross Cross had railed against the true Christ. And so after a while, well, she's she reading. I asked her, um, "What's that book you're reading?" And uh, she goes, "Oh, it's about book Who Je- Killed Jesus Christ." Oh, I said, "Oh, well, why are you reading that book?" And she said, well, I'm I'm going to university, and I'm taking religion there. And so I asked her, um, well, well, what do you think of that book? Oh, I think uh, this guy, John Dominic Crossan, he's a great reader. He has so much insight. I mean, he has a very deep understanding of things. I said, oh, is that so? I said, "Um, you know what? I I have a book that talks about the murder of Christ. And uh, maybe, uh, um, uh, do you come here often? And next time you come, I'll give it to you. I said, oh, yeah, that would be great because I'm writing a paper on this. So I I went back to my church and bought a book. It's called Who Murdered Murdered Jesus by by Pastor John MacArthur. And uh, so um, next time I was at Borders Society and she was there. And so I gave her a little chat again and she was still very friendly. And then the next time I went there, she saw me and then she made a beeline for the other end of the (laughs) bookstore. It talks about the truth about Christ dying. It was in that book by John Dominic Crossan, who of Jesus Christ. He had to come up with some excuse for why he couldn't find the body of Christ there. And it's just shocking what he says there. He says, uh, Jesus Christ's body was never resurrected. And to explain away why the tomb was empty, he said that dogs came and ate his body so that there was nothing left. And, and this, this poor young lady believes that. And because of this intolerant response that this man had, and he's deceiving others. Just like the the, the uh, priest, chief priests they their intolerant and they also led other people in the deception sorry let's turn back to point number one an ignorant response let's look at Matthew 28 11 to 5 now it reads here uh, uh, Matthew 28 11 now while they were on their way behold some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priest all that had happened and when they had assembled with the elders and cons- counseled together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they, instruct- as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. Here, an ignorant response here represented... By the governor and the Jews. Because this was, just, they were told a false story. And then we see at the end of uh, verse 15, and this story was widely spread among the Jews and even is to this day. In other words, it, it didn't, it, the story, the lie didn't stop and the ignorance didn't stop. It was spread, it, it propagated. They were deceived by the chief priests and the guards who propagated this lie. And the sad thing is that, as we read here, it's still believed to this day, and even today, as we go around this world, we know that this lie is believed. A lot of people don't believe that Christ was actually resurrected. We have people who, who look at, as we as read this article in Time magazine, we see people trying to explain away Christ didn't really have to die; he was really an example, and things like that. And uh, um, it is very sad so here we have two So far we looked at two um, poor responses to Christ an ignorant response and an intolerant res- response the third one we're going to just look at briefly is an introverted response or a self-centered response it's a response of people who only care about themselves and uh, who is this represented by? by the guards they only care about themselves because they what do they want? they want the money it said um, the, the elders counseled together and gave a large sum of money to the soldiers. And verse 15 says, and they took the money and did as they were instructed, had been instructed. In other words, they took the money and ran. They only care about the money. They were given a large sum of money. And, and that's, why is that so, um, that, why is that response so incredible? Because these were the very, these guards were the very people who actually saw Christ resurrected. Look back at, Verse 20 at the beginning. Look at verse 2. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his garments was as white as snow. Verse 4. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. And this is what they reported back to the chief priests. There's, it says in 11, Now they were on their way. Behold, some of the guards had come in the city and reported to the chief priests. All that had happened. And they, this is what they saw happen. They saw the worst nightmare in their minds. Here they were guarding this, per, this person in the tomb, Jesus Christ. They were to prevent any deception from happening. They were supposed to prevent the disciples from stealing the body. But what happened? There was a great earthquake. The storm was, was, rose away. Christ came out bodily. And they saw his appearance like light lightning. Garment as white as snow. And what was the response? They were frightened to the core. If if there was anyone who experienced the resurrection of Christ without a doubt, unequivocally, it was these guards. You can see it in the response. They 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 were in fear and became like dead men. This was the worst nightmare they had ever seen. They were just in utter fear. So they truly saw and witnessed Christ being resurrected. I mean, if you had saw something like that, a normal person saw something, a person coming alive, becoming white, just bursting out of the tomb, and there's earthquakes accompanying it. I mean, uh, we love to sell this story to the tabloids. But instead, these people took the money and ran. They only cared about their themselves. For their own life, their own self-interest, for moolah, and I think, you know, in Asia Asian world, we can understand a lot. A lot of, you know, us, you know, we're, we're told, you know, we need to get a good education so that we can get a good job, so that we can earn the money and be successful. And all the other things don't matter. You know, there, there are Christian parents that have told their children, yeah, you can be a Christian, but, you know, the more important thing is to earn the money. You can put aside that until maybe you're 45 when you had a successful life. Then you can go back to your missionary work. It's not too late at that point. And that's the way this world teaches us, you know. We've got to look out for number one. And that response is still the same. Have you tried sharing the gospel with people? And say, well, uh, let me, you know, let me, you can tell me some other time. Right now, no, it, it, what you're saying is good. But tell me later. You no, know, when I have more time. Tell me when I'm older. When I'm settled down. Now, life is too busy. I've got to get on with my life. I've got to get my education. I've got to earn my big bucks. And here the guards respond the same way. They just care about their own well-being, not about the truth. And they witness the truth like no one else did. The fourth is an indifferent response. It is very sad how we see the world respond to Christ and His resurrection. This great truth. Let's look back to chapter 27 Verse 62 to 65, again. And let's look particularly at verse 24. Sorry, uh, sorry, not, tw- not 24, to verse 65. Paul said to him, you have a guard. Go and make a secure as you know how. In other words, you go do what you need to do. And how do we know he, he's so indifferent to it? Let's turn back to verse 24 of chapter 27. And when Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the multitude, saying, I am innocent of this man's. See to that yourselves. This is not my business. This is in your hands now. This is Pilate's character. He doesn't care. He doesn't want anything to do with it. Even here, we say, you have a guard. You will take care of it yourself. Still the same. It's not my business. I don't need to know. You go deal with business. You go deal with what's important. i got my own business. I don't need to know this. He washes his hands of the matter again. He has seen the truth. He has met the Christ. He has talked to the Christ. But he washes hands of the entire fear. He washes hands of this man who, gave him, who was the king of the Jews. These as these four responses are responses that we see in the world as we, as we go out to perhaps give the gospel. Sometimes we get, no, well, that's not for me. Or oh, I don't know anything about Christ. No, the Bible is too hard for me to study. God's Word is too deep of no, ignorance, and they want to propagate their ignorance. Or they're intolerant. If God is so good, why is there so much suffering in this world? No, he's not a good God. We don't need to believe in him. Or, i got to focus on my life. An introverted response. A self-centered response. i got to get on with my life. This is going to take up too much time on my life. And the things are worthless. A Christ is actually worth everything. Or an in indifferent response. Oh, it's good for you, but it's not for me. And I hope here that none of you have such a worldly response to the cross, to the resurrected Christ. And here we finally come to the proper response of a true disciple of Christ. And here, these are some things that need to reflect in our lives. As we come to it, uh, we come to a proper response of a true disciple. The first one is the celebration of Christ. The first people to have a good response to Christ is Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. Look at verse 8. Of chapter 28, and they departed quickly from the tomb with great fear, with fear and great joy, and ran to report to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them, and he came up and took hold of him at his feet and worshipped him. You see, the soldiers, the soldiers, reacted, responded with great fear to Christ, but their ultimate response was one of greed, of money, of self-centeredness. But here, Mary Magdalene, not Mary, their response is even though they initially had fear, it says. They ran, uh, they departed quickly from the tomb with fear. But they also had another thing. And great joy. In fact, their joy was so great. It's a word, the Greek word, megas, And this is where we get our English word, mega. And that was, they ran from the tomb with mega joy. And to report it to his disciples. And how was that joy manifested when they saw Christ? Look at verse 9. And behold, Jesus came and behold, Jesus met them and greeted them and they came and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Here, they came and worshipped Christ. Here they came and celebrated Christ, the resurrected Christ. And not only did they worship him, what did they do? They, they were grabbing his feet. How did they grab someone's feet? Did you bend over and grab it? No. They, they threw themselves to the ground they grabbed his feet. That's how they worship. And this type of worship, even the word worship itself, uh, has a sense of being humble of prostrating oneself before that object that is worshipped, the person that is w- being worshipped. And this type of worship, what kind of worship is this for? Who do you worship by throwing your, your feet, yourself at their feet? Do you worship James that way? He's your pastor. Do you throw yourself at his feet? No, I don't think so. Right? Do you worship, if you met President Bush, would you throw yourself at his feet? Probably not. This was a worship worthy of a king. and This was Christ. So, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary threw themselves at Christ's feet and worshipped him. They took over grabbed his feet. This is the image of worship of a king. Christ. And as we go through Matthew, there's always many allusions to Christ as king. If we go through the genealogy in chapter 1, it also includes that Christ is the son of David. Who's David? King of Israel. And so it makes that point. It emphasizes that point a bit more than the other gospels. Christ as king. And then the other thing too is who... Were the first people to worship Christ that we recorded in Matthew? Three wise, three mag, I, I'm not going to say, I always say, mag, is it Magi or Magi? The wise men, they came to worship the king of the Jews, right? So here was the worship due to the king. Here was the proper response. So, and not only did Mary, Magdalene, Mary worship Christ when they first saw him, but also the disciples. Look down in verse 27. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. They worshipped him. This is the same word that we read back in verse 9. The idea, you know, this idea of worship also includes the idea of prostrating, the idea or the sense of prostrating oneself before the person that they worship. Here, uh, and they worshiped, even though some were doubtful. But you say, well, how can they worship if they're doubtful? Did they doubt that Christ truly was resurrected? Did they doubt that he was truly the Messiah? Now, this this is more doubtful of, uh, in terms of you know, the response or the application of one's life. This is the same type of doubt that Peter had when he saw Christ walking on the water towards the boat. we in that great storm. we out in the boat. And, and Peter, in, in the response of great faith, you know, he says, Christ, Jesus, it is your, your will. Asked me to come, and he stepped out of the boat and walked on the water. And then while he was on the water, what happened? He began to see the waves and the wind, and he became doubtful, right? This word doubtful means of two minds. You see, he's walking towards Christ. He sees Christ, but yet he also sees the waves. You know? He's sort of looking towards Christ and looking back. He has a two mind. Well, there's Christ, yet, yet now all these waves are going around. So here is the same word that's used here. are doubtful, they see Christ, he's resurrected. They say, well, um, uh, no, well, here he is. No, so, w- w- would they follow him? Would they do what he says? There are two minds about Christ. It wasn't that they didn't believe in Christ so much. They didn't have faith that he's the Messiah. But that they were uncertain how to respond. And just as Peter was uncertain, there's Christ, here to the Christ waves. And then eventually he sunk and he had to say, Christ, save me. Jesus, save me. I'm perishing. So, so here, it's not so much that they were uh, worshipping in doubt, but that their response, you know, how are they going to respond? How are they going to practically live out this life, their life from this point on? They see Christ, they see the world still. How are they going to respond? But in any case, they did worship Him. And uh, here is the Christ we worship. And uh, as, as Jesus described Peter's hesitancy, Oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? So it's not so much as referring to unbelief but tied to a small practical faith. So here, some of these songs were divided in their mind. Peter stepped out in faith and hesitated. So, some of these pers- people see Christ, they worship Him, but hesitated a bit. Peter saw the dread of the waves. Perhaps they were anticipating the dread of what's to come. So, so here are some of them. They move from, faith, uh, from fear to faith and joy, and then there are a few hesitant ones. But, despite the hesitancy, they had responded to Christ to go to Galilee to meet him as we see in verse 10. Uh, Jesus commanded uh, them say then Jesus said to them do not be afraid and take my word to my brethren to leave for Galilee and there they shall see me. So even though they were doubtful they still obeyed Christ's command. They still went there and they still worshipped him. And then after that they worshipped him. Christ said to them came up and spoke to them saying verse 18 all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So, uh, as they worshipped him, Christ brought their focus back to what? Back to his legitimate authority. Again, uh, one of the things that we see in Matthew, Christ is king. And here, he has legitimate authority. And this is in contrast with the illegitimate authority of the devil. Remember in chapter 4, as the serpent, as the devil tempted Christ, he showed him all the world and said, if you bow and worship, I'll give you all these things as if he owned it. As if he had authority over it, but here Christ is saying, "All authority has been given to me," and this is in the passive voice. Who had given it to him? Obviously, God the Father. So he is rightfully was given this authority by his Father in heaven. So it's not that Christ appropriated this authority on his own, but it's legitimately, rightfully given to him. And it's not like people who want to get into heaven and, uh, as Matthew 11, 12 says, and from the days of John the Baptist until now the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and men, violent men take it by force. In contrast, Christ's authority is legi- legitimate. And uh, this is the Christ that they worship. This is the king who has been given all authority. and And we know that Satan... The devil has no authority in this world. John 14.30 says, I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of, this, of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. He has no legitimacy here. He has no legitimacy whatsoever. He has nothing in me. Satan has nothing on Christ. He has made no claims on Christ, nor charged him with any sin. Satan could not hold him in death. Christ, as we saw on the cross, triumphed and destroyed Satan. And His death, Christ's death on the cross shows that Satan did not win. It's no sign that Satan won, even though he died. But this was God's will being done. Christ died on the cross, being crushed for iniquity. And now, Christ says, all authority has been given to me from the Father to His Son. And with that, he gives them his command. So first is the worship or the celebration of Christ. Second, we come to the command of Christ. He says, All authority has been given to me on heaven, in heaven and on earth. Verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. I remember many times in my past many missionaries or many pastors have taught from this passage and, and they wanted to fire, put fire under our feet to make us become missionaries, right? To try to convince us to become missionaries. And the first thing they say is it says here, go! So you need to go somewhere across overseas or abroad to become a missionary. And many times they would emphasize the word go. But uh, when we look at When we study this, we see that go is actually not the main verb there, not the main thing that they need to do. Actually, the emphasis is on making disciples. Making disciples. And uh, go actually describes how we are to make disciples. So the important thing is for all of us, Christ's command to us is make disciples. The word go is sort of described how that's to be done. Going, baptizing, teaching... That is describing how we are to make disciples. So what does that mean? What does that really mean? Well, when we look at this, you know, um, going can mean several things. One, one, sometimes it's used in the Bible of going in a certain direction, going to a place. But when we look in Matthew, there, there, there are several, um, several examples where this going has more to do with the direction in terms of purpose, not in terms of physical displacement. But in terms of purpose. But to fulfill that purpose, you have to be physically displaced. Um, Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 8. Matthew 2 8. This is the same word here, go. Okay? Uh, Exactly. um, Again, it's not the main verb. This is Herod. Talking to the Magi, and basically he wants to know where the Christ child is so that he can go and kill him and so he says in verse eight uh, it says in verse eight, "Go and make careful search for the child, and when you have found him, report him to me the The main verb here is not so much to go but to make careful search and find so that Herod can know where the baby was, but to do that, they need to go, but the purpose there is to find him, okay look again in nine thirteen just just uh, another example here Christ is saying ok here, here it probably has a even closer uh, gives a better understanding ok um, here Jesus is uh, responding to the Pharisees who are saying why is your teacher eating with the tax gatherers and sinners and he responds in verse 12 it is not those who are healthy who need a physician but those who are sick sick but go and learn what this means, I desire compassion, not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. In other words, Christ is not saying you had to uh, go somewhere. okay? But what he's really saying is you need to learn what his heart was, what his compassion was for people. So there is a purpose here. So even back here, when we turn back to chapter 28, this goal has a purpose. And what's that? To go and make, the, to make disciples. The focus is to make disciples. But you might need that by going somewhere. Because you need to go to people, right? And, and sometimes this idea of going could also have the nuance, a meaning of, as you go about in your life, as, as you live your life, make disciples. As you go around, as you travel, as you go to places, as you go to school, as you go to work, make disciples. It also has that nuance. So it says, go wherever you are in this life and make disciples. And, and the other idea that ties it together is of all the nations. Okay? This is the word ethnos. Okay, And... Um, Uh, where we get the word ethnic from. And you have to understand, Christ is talking to who here? He's talking to his Jews. All his disciples at that point were Jewish people. And they were the people with the message of what? Of the kingdom. And what their belief was, is that those who are in the kingdom are Jews. And everybody else, the Gentiles, are outside the kingdom. So what Christ is saying to them really is, when he says, go to all the nations, go to the ethnos, in other words, go to the people who are non-Jews, who do not have the message of the kingdom. Who do not know the gospel, who do not have eternal life, go to them. So the application for us here is the same. Go to the ethnos, those outside the kingdom of God, those who do not have the word, and make disciples of them. That could be anywhere. It could be here. It could be overseas. But wherever God has placed you as you go about in your life, He has brought people who are not His disciples. And so he says, make disciples. Go and make disciples of those who do not have the gospel of the kingdom of Christ. And here, this going also tells, gives us, our, tells us about our commitment. We need to be proactive in it. We need to do it. We're going. We're going in the direction of making disciples. And our commitment, you know, we go and we not only baptizing them, how to you know, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In other words, we, we, when we go and make disciples, part of our making disciples is not only by going to making this commitment, going to people and bringing His Word, but also to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And some, some, of you might be say, "Well, I never baptized anybody. I never dunked anybody," you know and uh, well, I need to fulfill this. Well, really, when you baptize them in the name of Father, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they're making a public identification of the body of Christ. In other words, you bring them into the church. You, you go there so that they can be part of the church, to be identified with the church. So when, we do, when, when, a, when a person comes to know Christ and baptized, it's their physical, making a physical manifestation of their identifying with Christ and become part of his body. It's his public identification with Christ. This morning you did that, right? As you had your FOF classes, even for Jason Park, so that he can be part of this church. And they are making a public identification with Christ and with the body of Christ. Oh dear, I looked like I've over my time. I didn't do that. Sorry. Okay, and the last thing, okay, is to teach them all that I've commanded you uh, in the command. And basically, uh, one thing is that a lot of times we go to... Pe- uh, the way we're taught is, you know, we only... Uh, a lot of times when I was, became a Christian, the only thing that was given to me was uh, John 3.16. Well, I don't think I really became a Christian at that point because all, all so I was is uh, for God gospel so love the world, that whoever believes in Christ shall, um, shall not perish but have an everlasting life. And for many years, that was my entire gospel... So when people began telling me and teaching me about, you know, well, we have to live this way and that way, and you need to, you know, uh, walk in the Spirit, I thought, boy, don't you know the Gospel is John 3.16, what are you talking about? But right here he says, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. And remember, at this point, the disciples did not have the New Testament. They only had the Old Testament. So when he says, all that I commanded you, where does that start? Well, I think it starts at Genesis 1.1. But no, We can use all parts of the Bible, but even that can be part of teaching all that I've commanded you. And the last thing that we see is the connection with Christ. The last part of verse 20. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Our connection with Christ. He abides in us. He's with us. I'm, lo, I am with you, even to the end of the age. We need to abide in Him. This is our connection with Christ. Here... Christ makes sure that the disciples hear this. He calls special attention to what he's about to say. It's low. It's an interjection. And what I'm saying, about here, look here. What I'm about to say is important. I'm with you. He's about to depart and leave them. But he says, I'm with you. And he says, it's, and when we read this in English, it doesn't bring out the emphasis that we see in Greek. If we were to translate it in the Greek, there's an emphasis on Christ, on the person of Christ. He says, i with you. I am. So emphatic. And that's, he's telling you, telling us, I, with you, I am. Without a look, I, with you, I am. He's not going to abandon us. He's not going to be without us. We need this vital relationship. We need this connection with Christ. And again, what's the center of our ministry? The focus of our ministry is Christ. And just as our response is not to be introverted to And to only care about ourselves, to care about the riches of this world, but our center, the focus, is with Him. I with you. I am. That is our focus. So, one thing. This is what is this. As we look at this account, as we look at the Great Commission, there are several things that we can see here that we need. uh, The proper our proper response is. First, the celebration of Christ. In other words, our need to worship Him. This is our purpose in our life, right? To glorify God and join forever. The celebration of Christ. And then we come to the command of Christ. This is what Christ has commanded. This is our commission. Christ has made, gave us commission to go to make disciples. And lastly, we have a connection or we have a relationship with Christ. This is our response. We need to be in that relationship all the time. I with you, I am. Not as the world is. They have no purpose. They have no commission. And they have no relationship with Christ. And this is what we bring to them. We bring Christ to them. And in Christ, they have purpose. In Christ, they'll have a commission. And in Christ, they'll have a relationship. And this is what we teach. We want to teach them to abide in Christ. And this is the message I bring with me when I go overseas. And th- even this is the message I have when I'm here. Uh, I even have opportunities here to counsel, to teach, to make disciples. Uh, and this is what the Lord wants for you. That as you abide in Christ, that you should make disciples, that you give them exactly what Christ has given you. Amen. Now let's look to the Lord. Most Gracious on Father, we thank You for Your Word and the instructions You left for us. And that we might, Lord, respond as true disciples. May we continue in our worship of You. Because only here, only amongst Christians, can there be true worship of You. That there is a little bit of heaven here on earth. And only here can we do Your work of making disciples, Lord. And Lord, may You help us do it faithfully. And even though, Lord, You are seated at the right hand of God, You, with us, You are. And Lord, may we continue to abide in that relationship, that we might give it to others also and make disciples as you have commanded. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.